You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Arthur Art Lindbergh, who's a former U.S. Naval officer who, in the late 1970s, was involved in one of the most consequential counterintelligence cases in U.S. history. Working with the FBI and NIS, which we all today know as NCIS, as a double agent against the Soviets. His biography is the conversation for this podcast, so I'm going to leave the introduction at that and get the ball rolling. So welcome, Art, and thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So for our listeners, and many of them are still working in government, so they're, they're, they, they weren't they weren't all that old in 1977. They weren't necessarily uh, uh, reading the, the newspaper articles that came out about this or the, or the information. Can you do us a, a favor in the very beginning and kind of lay out the Soviet threat that the FBI was worried about? You know, what, what prompted them to start this operation? Well, it started uh, as a result, not of worrying, but of uh, a very extensive uh, hand of friendship going to the Soviets by our president at the time, President Carter. He uh, recognized that uh, we were having very limited, if any, uh, Soviet shipping into our harbors and thought that some trade would improve relations. So he picked a couple of uh, major seaports and the Soviets decided to put a uh, tourist ship in at New York. Now this tourist ship would take uh, passengers on a Saturday afternoon, they would leave New York and go to Bermuda, spend a week in Bermuda, or approximately, and then return to New, to, uh, New York at uh, early on Saturday, the following Saturday morning. Uh, after a very short period of time and, and surveillance of the people on the ship, the FBI noticed that there were KGB agents on board, but they had no idea what they were there for 
nor how many or uh, what uh, was uh, behind it all. So they decided uh, to have a, uh, a double agent go on board and offer services. The uh, lead uh, FBI agent was a fellow John Curie Taylor who had had uh, six years in the Navy. And so uh, the uh, director there in New York said, uh, with your Navy background, you're responsible for this. Find out what's going on. He met then with NIS agents in the area and uh, they decided that uh, maybe they should put a, a naval officer on board. Typically, uh, up till that time, it was generally enlisted personnel who were utilized as, uh, for this service. But this time, they, they thought they would uh, try an, an officer. They put the word out to the, as I understand it, the uh, New York uh, area, New York, Connecticut, uh, a little bit of Pennsylvania and New Jersey, uh, where the NIS could ask and uh, come up with recommendations as to who might be the person. I was asked, I, I was in my terminal tour, if you will, with the Navy. I was planning to get out in a couple of years. And I was the director of the, a major field procurement office at the Naval Air Engineering Center, which had relocated to Lakehurst, New Jersey. The Naval Air Engineering Center was a major uh, research and development command on naval aviation from touchdown to takeoff. This included catapults, arresting gear, ground support equipment uh, for the aircraft, and of course, uh, much of this was, uh, was highly classified. So I was sitting there, uh, I'd uh, been a couple of years in that position and things were running extremely smoothly. We had uh, good recommendations on our audits and all that, and frankly, I was getting a little bored. It was a little <laughs> for me to go out and do anything with the uh, civilian population because two years is way, way in advance of uh, seeking a position. When the telephone rang and a Naval Investigative Service uh, fellow uh, on, at the station called me and said, Art, come on over, I'd like to talk to you. And I went into his office and uh, he said, Art, he said, but well, I'm gonna tell you now, you can't share with anyone. Don't want you talking to your boss about it. Don't want you talking to your family about it. But uh, we have a problem with uh, some of the procurements that uh, there might be some uh, leakage on classified information. Do you have any ideas that what that might be? Well, I had no idea. And I said, uh, I said that and he said, well, okay, well, give it a thought and I'll get back to you. So about a week went by and I got another phone call and he said, or right, come on over again. And then he said, well, what I told you really wasn't true. He said, uh, what I want to know is, would you be interested or would you consider taking on a secret assignment, one that you can never share with anyone, one that will not result in any benefit to you, money or any other way? Uh, and of course, uh, you know, you, you won't share it with anyone. And... Uh, the key word that he used with me was consider. Well, as I indicated, I was getting bored there and I didn't know what was going on. And of course, this was something that was totally foreign to my uh, way of thinking. And I said, of course I would consider it. Well, that was the end of that conversation. 
About another few days or a week went by, and then now we had a series of meetings with uh, FBI and uh, Terry Tate, the NIS agent. And they would be in motels around Tom's River. Well, that was all well and good, but these meetings were taking place in the middle of the day, and nobody knew that I was doing this. <clears throat> uh, I did not tell my boss, he had no indication of it, and I just disappeared, but that was not too unusual for my job because I was out talking to customers and I was out talking to uh, procurement uh, uh, providers. And uh, so I, I was able to go to these motels. Now, my concern was well, my residence was just uh, about a mile and a half away from one of the major ones. And I could just see my wife or a neighbor <laughs> seeing me going into a motel at 11 a.m. in the morning or coming out around noontime and have them say, what in the world is Art doing now? And uh, that would have nothing, uh, that would not be a good thing. It did not happen. But it's amazing how the mind will conjure up these thoughts and uh, become very serious impediments to what you're doing. Well, I met with the FBI and, uh, and I say, and we must have had about five or six meetings like this, each one lasting somewhere around 15 to 30 minutes and uh, not revealing exactly what we were going to do. I then got a phone call uh, that, uh, well, it was a phone call on a day that I was leaving for Virginia to uh, visit my in-laws for a week's vacation on the southern tip of the uh, eastern shore, which uh, is an area, very farm area. And uh, about the only thing you do there is, uh, you know, look at the potatoes grow. Well, I had a week of this. And the, the question was, now, not considerate, will you take on this assignment? And uh, under the same circumstances that, uh, and, uh, that I told you about, never to share, no money, no benefit, uh, but just take it on. Well, I was down there for a week, and uh, we were going to return on a, the following Sunday, and I'd uh, give him an answer that Monday after. And uh, lo and behold, my mind was in a buzz. What should I do? Sunday, we typically would go to a small Methodist church with, with my mother-in-law and uh, on our way north. She was in the choir and very active in this little church. Well, we were all sitting in that church and my mind was not on anything that had to do with what was there when I heard very clearly we should seize opportunities to serve God and country. Well, this hit me like a sledgehammer. And I said to myself, somebody's talking to me. I spoke later with the pastor and I spoke later with my family and, and uh, none of them had heard it. In fact, the pastor said I would never use words like that in a sermon. So I don't know where it came from, but that was really the turning point. Monday, I came back very enthusiastically, and I told the NIS and the FBI people, yes, I would take on the assignment. Let me ask you this, because I, I wonder what, in the conversations that you had, we think a lot, we, we actually teach in the spy museum about motivation for someone to commit treason, and talk about all the different, kind of the different mice, you know, 
money or ideology or coercion, what what would make you a believable recruit? What was your supposed motivation that you that they wanted you to come up with? Okay, number one, I was uh, the uh, director of procurement, and so all the procurements were going through me. And uh, whether they were top secret or secret or what have you, it made no difference. I, I had access to these procurements. Number two, I had uh, three daughters, all of them, uh, well, high school and senior uh, elementary school, and uh, I was getting out of the Navy. And uh, so it would be very understanding that I could use money to see that my children could get it to get to college and, and have a better life that way. Was not making that much money in the Navy. It was the pay was adequate and I had no complaints about it. But the money was a very high uh, item that they would look at and think of me as, a, as possibly suspect for that. Right. Well, it makes, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you kind of think, you think, you know, like what, I, I, you know, I think about this often because I've, you know, gone through security clearance process and they go through like, what possible ways can someone get to you? I mean, have you, have you thought about that before? I mean, you obviously had high level clearance and you thought about like, if I was recruited for real, like, would this be what they would use? Was it, was it something the FBI kind of already thought about and brought to you? Well, the FBI, they had determined earlier that the uh, money would be the primary reason for it. Uh, to find someone with access and totally dissatisfied with our government or the military uh, willing to betray people, that's uh, much fewer than the much smaller number of people. Right. There aren't that many Robert Hansons or uh, what have you. Uh, they, uh, you know, so... And Thankfully, right? Thankfully so. <laughs> so. Well, let me ask you, as you continue the story, and I don't want to kind of lead you in this direction, um, what approach to the Soviets did the FBI think would work? I mean, the, the assumption would have to be in many cases that the Soviets might have thought that you would be a dangle. You know, because they had to be very suspicious about someone obviously kind of walking in and showing up and saying, I want to spy for them. They're not idiots. They've been doing this for a long time. How how did you go about ensuring or at least convincing them that you were the real deal? Yeah, I uh, it, it was the the main issue was going to be my my desire to make money. And uh, we, uh, once I agreed to be a part of it, I found out what it was. They wanted me to go on this Soviet ship for a week. And uh, upon the, uh, disembarking back in uh, New York on the following Saturday, I would pass a note to the Soviets uh, that said, uh, hey, I was interested in making some money. And I had access to information that might be a benefit to them. And if they were... Uh, so inclined, uh, then they should give me a call at a specific telephone number at a certain time about a week following. And uh, so there was the money issue. How, how did you, you went on this cruise ship by yourself? What, what did you tell your wife about going on a week-long cruise ship? Well, I told her that I had uh, a, a contract termination up in uh, Detroit that would take me into Canada with a Canadian firm and uh, it was going to be a very difficult one and i might be gone for about a week 
And I said, if uh, she needed to contact me since I would be at various places and I couldn't give her a, a number. And in those days, I didn't have a cell phone. Uh, I said, uh, call the captain, uh, Jack Hoganson, and he, he'll know where I am because this is a major interest uh, contract. Now, my boss, I couldn't tell him that because that he, he would know that's a bunch of garbage. So I told him my aunt and uncle were who lived in North Jersey in a town called Livingston, that my uncle was in the hospital and, and my aunt was alone and she needed help. And so I would be up there for about a week. So when you when you were on the cruise itself, um, you, you you're not trained in intelligence. You didn't go through you know the CIA operations program. Yes, you're a military officer, so you you, you obviously are not just a civilian pulled off the street. But what were you feeling while you were on this cruise ship? I mean, you, you have to follow a very particular pattern. You you really can't enjoy yourself all that much because there's probably KGB people. And you obviously have a mission to carry out that you weren't necessarily trained for. So what's going through your head during this week-long cruise ship? Well, number one, I was not trained at all for this. But I knew what the requirements were. I knew that the secrecy was paramount. I uh, stayed away from people it, uh, because it became very evident the Saturday that I went on board, and it was prior to uh, getting underway, they said there's coffee and uh, cookies up in the uh, in the main rec recreation room. Anybody who wants it can have it. And I went up there, I got my coffee, and then this couple walked over to me and they had a, oh, I guess a senior teenage daughter with them. And uh, they, from Long Island, and they, uh, they uh, wanted to be friendly. And I had, uh, well, they uh, said, you know, who are you? And they gave me their name and I gave them mine. And, what, what are you doing on board? And I said, well, I'm just on board here uh, to relax and to make, my, make up my mind on, this, on something. And uh, they said, uh, well, what do you do? Oh boy, there was a question that really had me. So I, which I wasn't prepared for. I said I was a, a uh, oh, I forget now what I was, sales uh, operation in, in, for a company. And uh, they said, oh my gosh. And they said, you look like you're in the military. Well. For about two or three weeks before going on this ship, I let my hair grow. I didn't even get a haircut then. But in those days, two or three weeks, I still looked like I was in the military. <laughs> Needless to say, I stayed away from those people for the rest of the cruise. If I saw them coming, I went the other way. I had no uh, personal contact with anyone on board with the exception of one guy who seemed to get up early in the morning when I was getting up in the morning, I found out he was a Dutchman who was on board as a consultant for their food service. And boy, they needed that. <laughs> their, their food service was not too good. In fact, their, their service on anything was not too good. I had been alerted not to have anything that would be uh, timey with the FBI or uh, the government with me on board because they would be checking on uh well they would search people's uh, uh, belongings and so i didn't have anything about uh, the note that i was about to write and in fact they said don't write the note until the night before and, uh, and so i followed that i had a uh, contact uh, set up if needed in bermuda and it was the Bermuda office of the Naval Investigative Service, as you indicated before, the CNIS now. And uh, 
I would give them a call and I would uh, ask them, um, does it ever get cold in Bermuda or snow? Does it ever snow in Bermuda? And then they would know it was me and they, they would try to provide me with assistance. I did not contact them. I didn't feel I needed it. And uh, while in Bermuda, I would go off on my own and do, do my own thing, which wasn't very much. I, I kept low profile the entire time. Do you think, and, are, sorry, sorry to interrupt, Art. Do you think that couple was KGB? Oh, no, no. They, I think they were just friendly. They, yeah, fact, just, they, they, too many questions for them. <laughs> I, I was then afraid I'd get myself into a box that yeah. I couldn't get out of. And uh, that would not be too smart because, hey, they might be KGB. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, uh, the night before we got back to uh, New York, I wrote the letter and it included a telephone number and a time to call. And uh, I passed it. Well, I was going to get off quite early on, the, on that, on the ship. And lo and behold, the uh, gangway was, was jammed with people. And I could just see passing the note to the uh, officer of the deck at the gangway. And he would take a look at it or something. And I'd be nailed and couldn't get off the ship because they were so slow leaving that I kept going back further and further in the line till I was virtually the last one of that major group that uh, was there. I waited for the gangway to clear. I passed the note in an envelope to the officer of the deck. And he looked at it and he said, oh, thank you. With a big smile, he thought he was getting a tip. <laughs> Absolutely thought he was getting a tip. And I told him what a nice cruise it was. And uh, so off the ship I went. Um, we then had a week to wait to see whether somebody would show. And uh, on that, that day, I went to the uh, location. It was outside of a diner in New Jersey just off of the Garden State Parkway. And uh, it was in a big parking lot in front of the diner that was virtually empty because it was early and it was about 11 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I pulled up to the telephone booth, which is now uh, something ancient, not utilized. And uh, the door to the telephone booth was open and I had my car situated so that I could uh, easily I could see what was going on. I could easily uh, exit the car and get in and answer the phone. A car pulled in and parked, oh, maybe 40, 50 feet away from me with an older gentleman and his wife, looked like New Jersey license plates. And he came over toward the telephone booth and he looked into my car. I was in uniform. And uh, oh, he said, what a lovely day, words to that effect. And he went in and made a phone call. I heard him say, it looks like him. And uh, so uh, he came back out went to his car. I wrote down his license number. Found out, yes, they were two very sympathetic Americans to, uh, to the Soviet Union. And they came from West Orange, New Jersey. And, uh, you know, so the FBI at least had something on them. I went in there and at the right hour, the phone rang. And it was uh, Soviet uh, on, the, on the phone, Baldic Anger. And he said, uh, hello, Ed, because I had put in my letter to ask for Ed. And uh, we went on from there. He uh, was pleased with that. And could I get him information? 
but he didn't want to do much on that phone call. So he said, we're going to have to do this again. Can you meet with me uh, or telephonically? Well, can you meet with me at this number a week from now? And I said, of course, that's fine. Anything that you're saying is fine with me. And uh, so then we hung up. And uh, I came back and we were extremely pleased that they had at least nibbled at the bait, which was me. And of course, uh, I was going through this. My wife, I was into, because I was getting out of the Navy, I was into a lot of uh, volunteer places. Uh, there was the Lions Club and there was the... Uh, Oh, uh, the professional engineers club. And there were a few couple of other things I was involved with. And it was easy for me to say to my wife, well, you know, I've got a Lions Club meeting up in North Jersey and I, you know, on a Saturday. And uh, there was no reason for her not to believe me. I mean, I'd always been very honest with my wife. I had always been very honest with everybody. And here I am starting to lie like, like crazy. And... Uh, but it, it worked out and uh, the following Saturday went through the same thing, except the, the phone rang and he said, I want you to go to another telephone booth, which was located some two, three miles away, gave me directions, which turned out to be wrong. And uh, I had to get to that phone booth in, I don't know what it was, 15 minutes or so, which would seem to be more than adequate. But with wrong directions, I took the wrong turn and, and finally, uh, you know, finally found it, got there just before the phone was ringing. And he said, uh, need you to, uh, there's a note under the shelf in this phone booth. I want you to take that, go back to your car, look it over, and then uh, I'll call you back in 10 minutes and you can give me an answer to the various questions in there. Well, I did that. And uh, this was another one It seemed like every time they had a phone, a phone booth that I was to go to, there was an open area, generally cemeteries, uh, where someone could look right in on the telephone booth, you know, from quite a distance. And uh, it, I was, I felt that I was constantly under surveillance by the Soviets, which was fine by me. There was absolutely no FBI surveillance of me at this time. And that was made plain to me. Uh, the uh, they wanted uh, first to make sure that I had set the hook with the Soviets and uh, then they would start to surveil both of us. But uh, in the beginning, there was, a, there was nothing for me and uh, even on the ship. And of course, that gets back to it's a good thing that Robert Hansen and, uh, and Aldra James and those people weren't active at that time. They got active about a year after Lemonade. And uh, by the way, Lemonade, I, I, when I make these presentations on Lemonade, I do it. The title is Lemonade with Unanticipated Consequences. <laughs> and the unintended, unintended consequences were superb. And I'll get to them a little bit later in this uh, uh, conversation. And uh, so anyway, I, I filled that out. And here we were getting a little more and more. And it was about once a month, I would meet with them somewhere. And it was always a phone booth at first. And then they tell me to go to a certain place and look under this or next to that and uh, pick up a, uh, a, a dirty old Coca-Cola can or what have you. And uh, in some of these presentations that I make in, made in New Jersey, 
I say in New Jersey, never walk past garbage on the road. Just pick it up. It might have, might have big money in it. Because well, we're, we're we're in we're in the D.C. area, so that's the same here, sure. right? Where there's every other every park bench could be a dead drop. Let me let me. Yeah, that's right. You know, it's uh, basically the same thing. Let me ask and, you about uh, what we were talking. Let me let me let me. Sorry, again, it's already interrupt, but let me ask you about what you're what you're talking about here because I've read it. I've read the case the case a lot about this case. Uh, and the tradecraft that the Soviets used, like you're mentioning, was surprisingly simple, right? It was like soda can. It wasn't very James Bondy. It was, you know, trash or cigarette packs and other things like that. How much did this case, because I read the, the FBI part of this, that how much did this case help the FBI to understand how the Soviets worked, the patterns of recruitment, how they ran agents, what they were doing? So it seems like this was, you, you were really the, the great test case because they could watch you and you could report back on exactly how the Soviets were running their high-level spies in the United States. Well, yeah, I think, and the beauty of this case is that the, uh, the Soviets kept it very, very simple. And uh, they also had it that they wouldn't drop the material, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, wouldn't drop any material uh, well in advance it was always dropped and i'd be there probably within 15 20 minutes sometimes less than that so there was uh, they really reduced the uh, the opportunity for this material and, and it included money they uh, did not have stuff sitting out there for any length of time and my notes to them my information my uh, feedback to them uh, was uh, also picked up almost immediately well, how how much how long did you go before the FBI started setting up surveillance of these dead drops and and, and predicting the moves? Because as as you mentioned in, in some of the stuff I've read and as some of these files say, it was obvious the Soviets had a team of their own, where the person you were talking to on the phone wasn't the person setting up the dead drops. It couldn't. There's no way, timing wise, it could be the same person. So, at what point did the FBI say, okay, we're going to kind of start tracking these guys as they're moving? Forward? I, I don't know exactly, but I think it was about the third drop. It was uh, the, the drop started in uh, in September, and uh, it must have been around uh, November sometime that they started to surveil them. What uh, what was really important was the fact that early it was in the uh, first drop area. I got the telephone or I got the license plate number, and. Uh, saw the uh, the Soviet uh, in a car. And uh, I turned, of course, we're turning everything uh, over to the FBI, every tele every uh, license plate number that might have anything to do with it, I would write down and they would get it. And I, I had to do all that very discreetly. So if I was being observed, which I was in many cases, uh, no one would think I was uh, taking notes on this thing. And uh, they identified, the FBI identified, um, Chernyev and Anger as the two Soviet spies, so they knew where they lived, and uh, they at first started to trail them on their Saturday uh, uh, travels for the rendezvous. Well, they were driving all over everywhere, uh, and they would leave early in the morning, and they would get there around, uh, I think it was two o'clock that we did most of these things, and uh, then they finally started just identifying when they left, and where they were going, uh, the destination. 
and they'd pick them up in New Jersey as they were coming in. So there was uh, total uh, control on the part of the FBI as to what was going on here. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. In a lot of cases, with, with counterintelligence, the... The FBI looks to sit back and follow for quite some time. I mean, I think the, the most recent case um, in 2010 of the Russian 10 who were arrested in around the same place, New York and New Jersey, the FBI had been following them for a decade. But this was only several months that you were in play because it was early or a springtime, I believe, of 1978 that they decided to arrest these guys. What, what was the final decision for the FBI? Why did they decide now was the time to pick them up? Well, that's, uh, that's one of the key questions on the whole operation here. Generally speaking, we would never make an arrest. This case was the first time we took Soviet government employees and arrested them. And that came about by Griffin Bell, who was attorney general at the time, and a good friend of Carter's. He was, of course, monitoring Operation Lemonade. And, uh, and this happened uh, probably in February or March. He went to President Carter and he said, this case is going so smoothly and so well that we can take them to court. And of course, that's one of the big fears in American society is uh, if you go to court and you're giving the defense attorneys full reign to uh, bring up all the things that uh, protect someone charged. And they didn't want it to go to court and then have it rejected uh, by a jury or by a judge or anyone else. And uh, Carter said to uh, Griffin Bell, and I got this from Griffin Bell, uh, well, I want to have uh, Admiral Stansfield Turner, who headed up the CIA, and Cyrus Vance, who headed up State Department. Uh, we'll get the four of us and we'll decide what we're going to do. Well, they met. And uh, the question was, shall we go for an arrest? Well, Stansfield Turner, he said, no way, don't do that. And uh, Cyrus Vance sided with Stansfield Turner, said, nah. In fact, I am told that uh, Stansfield Turner said, if we make an arrest of them, they're going to arrest our guys. And uh, Carter's response to that was, if they can arrest our guys, how valuable can they be? Kind of an interesting thing. And uh, so uh, the decision was made over the two objections, initial objections, and they eventually agreed with it to go for an arrest. And the time to pick the arrest was to be in May, the May issue, uh, 
rendezvous. So let me let me interrupt. Sorry, how how surreal is it to think that you you're you're not like a rear admiral, you're a lieutenant commander, you've had a very successful career, but you're 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 an you're an average guy up until this point. But there's a conversation taking place about you with the president, the secretary of state, the CIA director, and the attorney general asking what they should do about your case. That's kind of extraordinary where you've gone from, again, a guy bored, doing an important job, but you know, kind of bored with life, to conversations in the Oval Office about your case. Well, I, uh, I of course, I, I don't know, I, I lack a lot of humility, I guess. But I, I think the, uh, the big thing was that they, the more they found out about me, the more they found that uh, I was reliable. Uh, I followed instructions when given. I could respond to situations as they arose that uh, were unanticipated. And uh, I sure as heck didn't uh, mess up this operation with the Soviets. It, as a, uh, a interesting side on that, the, after the case, there was a uh, CIA uh, meeting at uh, uh, Princeton University for a weekend. And I decided to go to that. And I went and on a Saturday morning, they introduced all the speakers and they were all up on the dais. And they, one of them was uh, Oleg Kalugin. Yep. And they introduced him as uh, having been the head of the first uh, directorate of the uh, KGB. And he was really a, a you know, right up next to uh, whoever it was that, that handled the KGB at that time. And I went up to him uh, during a coffee break and I said, do you know uh, Valdek Enger? And uh, he's a little shorter than I am, I guess about a foot. And uh, we had big name tags and he just turned his head around, looked at my name tag, raised his right hand and he said, you were my biggest failure. <laughs> so we, we know Oleg well, Oleg's a member of our board at the Spy Museum, so yeah, when He's a wonderful man. Yeah. If you if you do see him, please give him my regards. I would oh, very much appreciate that. Uh, he was very kind. He met with me on several occasions, and uh, he's a wonderful gentleman. I, I can I can imagine that scene in my head, knowing Oleg as well as I do. Just you know, just doesn't hold anything back. I can just you are my biggest failure. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> not a hello, not a nothing. <laughs> that were the first words. <laughs> well, let me ask you about that. Let me ask you about that failure because I, I think that reading about the the kind of the end game, the final operation, could be right out of a movie. I mean, was it literally? Did you have FBI agents hiding in your trunk? Oh well, let me tell you about that. That <laughs> that, that was the the end of uh, the active uh, lemonade business. And uh, yes, I did have two agents in the back of my car. It was a little Maverick uh, four-door sedan. The seat back seats had been removed and there were styrofoam filled uh, 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 lawn uh, stuff uh, put back there. And so somebody looking at that would have thought I'd went to, gone to the nursery and picked up uh, things to work around the yard. And uh, they were in the back they had radios. Uh, it was a hot day in New Jersey. Uh, let me back off just a bit. It was uh, the first the first date that we were to make the arrest. Uh, the, the FBI had taken my car for a few days before, and they went and they was, went down to their uh, auto place in Washington, 
and they put in all sorts of stuff, fancy uh, radio uh, that was borrowed from the CIA, uh, and it broadcast over uh, over the uh, garbage circuit in New York in bursts. So if anybody was tracking in the radio communications, it would sound like static on a garbage circuit, and that was all it was. Otherwise, they could monitor what we were saying. And uh, it, it, uh, I had a cameras in the front and the back, and I had a way to get a flat tire if I needed to, and it, you know, it was kind of jazzed up, and it was very interesting to me, and I had that for several operations. Uh, and they were back there. Uh, the temperature got up around 90, and it was a hot, humid day in New Jersey. They stayed in the back. Well, I, we, I went, was ready to go that first day that was assigned, and uh, Terry Tate was going to bring the car back and pick me up at my house. When I walked out of the house, I saw he had a long face. He said, the, the operation is called off for today. Oh, no. Well, it's a wonder to me that it didn't leak. The FBI had, the, <clears throat> had New Jersey totally controlled. Every bridge, tunnel, road was capable of being shut down in the event that we went for arrest and they somehow got away and we're going to try to get out of New Jersey. And uh, they had, uh, there were over 100 FBI agents uh, in the state, and I don't know how much was shared with municipal uh, police, but that had to be in there also. We were good. We always had a backup date with the Soviets. So I just didn't show that day. And a, the next day, which was the following Saturday, I went to this uh, A&P grocery store where I was supposed to go, and I got my phone call, and they told me where to pick up my next note, which gave me directions into a construction area uh, where they were going to start putting in houses, which was not too far away. Drove over there with the two guys in the back. They were ready to jump out if anything really uh, happened. And uh, I went to the spot. There was a big tree, and uh, most of the ground had been cleared around it. And I dropped my uh, secrets off. And by the way, these this time they were secrets. All prior information had been declassified before I gave it to the Soviets. Right. And uh, because and, and therefore they had nothing to arrest them for that would hold for anything. But this time they were classified, and they uh, and I dropped it off, and they sure enough came and they picked it up. Well, when they picked it up, they were nailed. I had left that spot and I had gone to a shopping area not too far away. And there was a phone booth there and I found a parking spot in the parking lot, which was several hundred feet away from the phone. And uh, all of a sudden we hear over the radio, it was a su success. We made the uh, arrest, everything is fine. Well, the guys were so anxious to get out of the back of my car and that they popped the trunk. I didn't do it. They did it. They had that capability. <clears throat> and as I'm looking, I see this lady walking from the mall, pushing a baby carriage, just as that trunk lid came up. <laughs> and two sweaty guys with holsters on their shoulder and then across their chest come jumping out of the car. I don't know but what she could have had another baby at that time. I mean, oh my goodness. But she, <laughs> I think the, the one of the guys went over and spoke to her. But uh, if anybody would get frightened with it, oh my gosh, that was the time to be, get frightened.
but that was the uh, that was the arrest. And uh, so let me let me ask you this. So there, as I read about this, there seemed to be short term results in that we arrested some some Soviet spies and kind of figured out what they're doing. There were medium term results in that we were able to trade eventually, as you'll talk about, I'm sure, these spies for some dissidents. And then there were long term events, which I'm sure you will certainly get to about how this kind of opened up the opportunity to bring a lot of potential dissidents or at least get them out of Soviet prison. So can you kind of wrap up what this case meant in a, in a, in a broad sense? Well, number one, once once I heard that the arrest had been made, I figured that's the end of it. And there goes my, I no longer have to be secret. And I don't have to go lying to people where I'm going and all that kind of stuff. And it hit the newspapers uh, the week before it got canceled because as we were would have been making the arrest, uh, uh, Gromyko was due to land in uh, Kennedy, and he was to start SALT talks, strategic arms limitation talks, uh, in Washington the following Monday. And they thought that would be a terrible way to start those negotiations. So that's why it was put off for a week. And uh, anyway, it, uh, the news hit in Saturday afternoon, big news that night. Sunday papers had it blasted all over. And there was no mention of Arthur Lindbergh. There was this unidentified naval officer. And I became the unidentified naval officer for the entire summer. Uh, so here I was. I was still undercover to friends and neighbors and family and everything else. My wife knew that I was involved with the FBI. Uh, Terry Tate, the NIS agent, had met with her very clandestinely, and that was... Uh, oh, my gosh, would that have made a movie? It was on a dark, dreary, drizzly day in gray buildings on Lakehurst uh, that were used for for summer <laughs> recreation. And uh, and she said and he said to her that I was involved with the FBI and if, uh, she couldn't he couldn't share any more. But if, if she had any uh, real questions, they ask her. She never had any questions. Anyway, that takes care of that. But she knew I was involved with something, didn't know what. And uh, anyway, uh, Sunday morning, my goodness, I went to church and the, uh, there were people talking about this uh, great arrest that was made. International publicity was fantastic at that time. We then started the trial uh, preparation immediately after. And as we started the uh, trial preparation, Zbigniew new Brzezinski started meeting with uh, Gromyko on a swap. That was almost an immediate thing. And uh, he was kind enough also to give me a little background on what was going on. And the, uh, I went up there on almost a daily basis. And uh, of course I was still in the Navy and nobody asked what, what in the world are you doing? You know, you haven't, you're retiring, but aren't you getting out and leave? <laughs> but I wasn't. And uh, we had, uh, you know, we were fully prepared for the trial, which started, as I recall, in uh, late uh, September. And I had four days on the witness stand. And the, uh, it was uh, actually a, just a fantastic time for me. I uh, was very pleased with it. And uh, we nailed the guys. We were able to put uh, all the information together. The, the team on this entire lemonade was incredibly professional. 
FBI was dealing uh, a bit, not, uh, I guess, extensively, but a bit with CIA. CIA was supporting where they could with material or uh, issue on uh, items that might help. Uh, the uh, local police where needed, they were helping. In fact, it was one that uh, became a friend of mine. I didn't know he was involved with it, but he was involved and uh, they supported the FBI. And uh, the FBI agents were, everyone that I came in contact with, they were so, so truly professional that I can understand why Griffin Bell felt that he could go to the president and recommend an arrest. And John Kerry Taylor was the uh, special agent in charge of this operation. And he was, uh, he was so adept at, uh, at handling every crazy thing that might come out of it. And uh, when the trial started, again, this was unique. And the world press got on top of it. And, uh, you know, stirred up all sorts of uh, rumors and what have you about what is going on in the Soviet Union. Well, the trial was over. They were convicted. They were sentenced to, as I recall, 50 years in jail. They didn't serve it. They were uh, allowed under uh, rights of uh, appeal, and eventually it was commuted by the president. And uh, so they didn't have to go to, they spent one night in Rikers Island, and I understand that was enough to convince them that that's not a good place to spend any time. And uh, so anyway, uh, all of a sudden, and here I was, I, I got off the, the witness stand, and I didn't expect to get called back. But I said, if I was called back, I would, I would uh, come. And I started work at Jersey Central Power and Light Company, and I had a uh, nice position to the vice president of materials management at the time. And uh, my career with them turned out to be fantastic. I had uh, what became the position of uh, regional president for them. And uh, it was just uh, great. And I don't even know how to plug in a toaster as far as electricity is concerned. <laughs> <laughs> and I never did figure that one out. But I uh, was very successful in running an organization. It, it just, uh, they had Three Mile Island came in and there were a lot of things that really got things messed up. And right. anyway, that takes care of that. But uh, the publicity with, with the uh, arrest and the, uh, then the trial and then the swap. So five, we got five Soviet dissidents for the two and a plane came, landed at Kennedy the two Soviets went on board the, in the front uh, access and five dissidents came off in the back. And again, terrific publicity, just terrific publicity on it. And pressure started to be put on Brezhnev to free people from the gulags and those under surveillance. And uh, it got to the point where Brezhnev had to relent and get into that. One month he released 51,000 Jews primarily, but uh, then there were additional Christians and, and just non-believers of anything who also got their freedom. I did have a, uh, an opportunity, uh, well, I was asked by the Russian Jewish Community Foundation of New England, which represented 40,000 people. Not all of them were free from the gulags and, and the surveillance of the, by the Soviets. Many of them were uh, descendants of those people. 
and uh, they gave me an award, and it was very, very nice. Black tie dinner dance, uh, 500 in attendance, and uh, just outside of Boston, and it was really a, a spectacular evening. And after I got the award, and uh, I was standing up in the front, and there was time, people you know, had time to come up and ask questions, and most of them came up. There were, there were some older people that came up to me with tears in their eyes, thanking me for their freedom. Now, they were thanking me, but I was nothing but a representative of the entire team, let me tell you. And I, I was very proud to be that. And then this little girl, <clears throat> excuse me, this little girl came up. She was probably 10 years old, plus or minus a year or two. And she looked at me and she said, thank you for my parents' freedom. Let me tell you, that was the reward that I got for being involved in this operation. That little girl saying that to me was uh, just fantastic. Well, you're, you're humble about your, your part, your role in all this, but let's, so, so let's say your team, th this small operation that obviously had real major implications led to the real, the, the freedom of at least 50,000 people is what you're saying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Well, you know, one of them, <laughs> one of them was, um, uh, dog gone out. Can't, what the heck was his name? Valentin Moros. He was a Ukrainian and he was a, a historian. And he wrote uh, history the way, Ukrainian history the way he saw it. And that did not have at all please the Soviets. <laughs> And uh, he was unique in that uh, he hated everybody that didn't agree with him. So he was thrown in a gulag. He then um, took a, a retribution on the poor Jews that were in there. One was Edward Kuznetsov. And Edward Kuznetsov also got freedom on the, uh, on the lem as a result of Lemonade, one of the first five. And... Uh, I, nobody should fight Edward Kuznetsov. He, he's uh, almost a duplicate in appearance with Ole Kalugin. Short, stocky, and I mean, looks like they could take on a bear if they needed to. Well, it got so bad with Moros that Moros got beaten up by Kuznetsov, not because Kuznetsov was the aggressor. Moros was the aggressor. But Kuznetsov would not uh, put up with this nonsense. I got this from Kuznetsov. I had the privilege of meeting with him, and I've had a couple of telephonic conversations with him in Israel. Uh, quite a gentleman. He started three Russian-language newspapers. His wife became vice mayor of Jerusalem. What a uh, wonderful man he was. A good friend of Netanyahu's, too, by the way. But anyway, it got so bad for Moros in that uh, gulag that he had to go to the commandant and ask for solitary confinement. <laughs> Now, why? And we didn't want him. We were very happy with the other four. And one was a Baptist preacher. We, you know, he covered the bases. And they were wonderful, wonderful people. And then the Soviets said, no, we want you to take uh, Moros. Well, we don't want Moros. They, he's not on our list. You take him or you don't get anything. So we took Moros. And what the Soviets thought would happen was he would end up in Ukrainian, uh, some Ukrainian groups, and he'd be as antagonistic and, and destructive of their operations as he was with everything else that he dealt with. And eventually he went back to the Ukraine. The last thing I heard about him, he ran some little food stand in the farm area somewhere in the Ukraine, never amounted to much.
Well, let me let me wrap this up with with one last question, then I'll let you go. I, I know that in Jimmy Carter's one of his many books, but really all of them focusing on humanitarian issues. That was his the hallmark of his presidency was trying to, you know, open up societies and do humanity. And right now, of course, he's still doing that at age 90, whatever, building houses and doing all that. He really singled out that this operation and the humanitarian, you know, release of all these these gulag prisoners as like the highlight of his presidency from a humanitarian perspective. Very true. He uh, he included in his uh, autobiography, it's it's being uh, Operation Lemonade, one of the most significant things in a human way that we've done since I've been in office. Hmm. And uh, I tell you, it's uh, in my mind, and, and it was all summed up with that little girl saying, thank you for freedom. So many people got freedom from this. And uh, of course, that was a lot of years ago and what goes on today, who knows? But it was at least uh, a wonderful thing in that regard. I think it was a winner for the FBI and counterintelligence people in that they, they saw how the Soviets were, were operating. And uh, the way they were operating was really uh, so low key that uh, unless you were specifically looking in that area, I mean, just, just to have it, as you indicated earlier, in a piece of trash, I had uh, two uh, radiator hoses from an automobile and it had $5,000 in it, you know? And it had all sorts of dirt and stuff glued around the side. Of course, I took that as a training lesson, and that's how I was turning things back to them. The first one that I gave them was about 200 pages of Xeroxed uh, information on whatever the project was. And it was wrapped and put in a uh, orange juice container, a half-gallon thing. And it stuck out on the end. I mean, it was like a, a Rube Goldberg type of thing. Anybody would laugh at how screwed up it was. So they gave me instructions on what to do, and they gave me money to buy a camera and to use the, the film, <laughs> use a Xerox machine, because it's, you know, it just makes everything so big. And uh, so I, I did that and became much more uh, accustomed to being a pretty good spy for them. You got some on-the-job <laughs> training, yeah. <laughs> so, well, Art, I really appreciate you coming to today. Uh, this is such a fascinating story. For those out there listening who want to know more about this, the, the several places, the FBI and the CIA both have a lot of information, Operation Lemonade, on their websites. Uh, I hope they get a chance to meet with you one day. Obviously, we're, we're separated by, by hundred, you know, thousands of miles, but also a global pandemic. But maybe one day we'll get a chance to sit down and, and have a conversation in person. But for now, Art, thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on SpyCast. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's, uh, it's wonderful to see that there are people who appreciate what happened on this thing. And, and uh, oftentimes we don't see that from the press anymore anyhow. But thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey listeners, we're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network 
and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now. 